Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and we will be talking about current trends in the wine industry with you today. Now, the first topic that we wanted to talk about is something that we've mentioned a few times before, but it is one of the hottest categories that is continuing to grow in the wine market. And so we're going to talk about it again. And it's about red blends and specifically New World slash California red blends. Kim, this red blend trend just keeps going on. It was very interesting how they looked at it from a consumer trending and from a U.S. wine industry trending. It, one of the topics they mentioned was it, the people are buying these red blends because they pair better with rich foods. Uh, I don't really see people buying red blends for food pairing, but what did you think of that? I hadn't really thought of that either. Although when I go back and I think about, okay, what are the kinds of wines that I would pair with something like barbecue or a stew that maybe has some fruity elements or some sort of sweet element to it, like a barbecue sauce, then yeah, I actually would consider these to be appropriate wines for that. But I definitely see these as more of a, hey, I want a glass of wine and so you pop this open because it's easy to drink it's um it doesn't like you said doesn't really require a whole lot of food to make it taste better you know it is it is what it is on its own i do see a lot of them marketed as a barbecue type food wine and i think that they do go well like that and the other idea was the reason they're trending so much is because people just like the approachable names or the labels in one of the things 10 years ago menage a trois was one of the first people that came out with this red blend and they're still trying to this day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're still one of the, the top two biggest sellers in this category. It's all about the name, uh, the title or the name brand they come out with. And it's still trending. So that's very interesting. The other things they mentioned was you were talking about some numbers. They're saying now 40% of the new wines in the US market are red blends. Which, which tells is, me that the market's going to be saturated with this style pretty soon and people are going to start looking for something else. But I don't know, it seems, you know, we seem to see this when it comes to trends in wine in that 10 years ago or maybe a little bit longer when Pinot Noir really started to get very popular because of the movie Sideways. Suddenly, in a couple of years, we saw all these Pinot Noirs flooding the market and then it was kind of hard to differentiate between the two of, between a whole number of them and, and then people started to get a little bit bored with it. So I'm wondering if we'll see something similar here. So I'm going to give you three. They ranked the top three wines in the U.S. market. I'll give you three and you pick one, two, three. So okay. Cab, Blends, and Chardonnay. Ooh, Cab blends and Chardonnay. I'm going to Remember, go... the red blend is trending. It's so. trending. I don't know if I want to put the red blend in that number one spot. You know what? I think I will. I think I'll do red blends, Chardonnays, and then Cabernets. See, How'd I, I do? I tricked you because it's actually Cabernet, Chardonnay, red blend. Uh. But <laughs> but to put the red blends third above other varietals, like you mentioned, Pinot Noir. Pinot sure. Noir is not on this list. So it is top three in in the market. The U.S. market, usually Cab is, is the big guy, cab which it is. So it's taken a big chunk. So what you see now maybe is a little bit more cab in these blends. Maybe. Maybe, but there's something about this style that makes them very approachable for people who maybe don't want to think too much about their wine or they're just there to have a glass and not necessarily to do all the, I think, mental heavy lifting that people who go to wine tastings and who are really interested in finding out the history and the stories behind their bottles. Sometimes you just want a glass of wine that is yummy and is easy to drink. And I think that this is the style that is filling that need. It was interesting, this article called these the 
Coca-Colas of wine, which I think is very apt because they do have some noticeable sweetness to them. And if you don't drink a whole lot of wine, you might not notice that it's got sweetness there, but it's certainly there. Yeah, let's talk about that because they were saying, well, is this a sweetness factor? People are liking red wines. I think that there absolutely is something having to do with these having some sweetness to them. Now, it's the funny part to me about is when people pick up one of these, I'll say, you, so you like sweet wines? And they'll like, say, no, well, that's not no, no, sweet. No. So, I mean, that's another whole topic. But to me, they do have a finish of a sweetness that is trending. And what I thought was a generational thing, when you were brought up with uh, the Coca-Cola, you had more of a sweet palate. But we talked about this in the past, and you had stated it's more of a general. It is generational, it's generational, but it's trending again, right. sweet palate, sweet wines. And I think that just happens with you know people who are starting to become of age where they are allowed to drink. You don't turn 21 or you're not, you know, 21, 22, 23 years old and you're not going to drink a big glass of Bordeaux. It, it doesn't work that way. You know, you want to start with something that's really yummy and then eventually your palate develops so that you're looking for something else and something more interesting and something more complex. And But you don't start with those big heavy tannic reds. They It's like starting with espresso when you've never had coffee before. It just, it doesn't work that way. And you so, see a name and you see a nice looking label nice or label, brand. You know, you, you can't discount the importance of marketing. So much of the dollars that you spend on that bottle of wine, depending on what the wine is, goes into that marketing budget. And there's really something to be said for paying attention to what is selling and is it the marketing dollars behind that that is that is helping that. And it's not just about what the flavor of the wine is in the bottle. The other good point I brought to light in this for me was they were saying consumers are more eager to buy these based on the, the name. Other, They don't care about the grape. They don't care what varietals on. They don't want to learn what grapes are in it or hear what grapes are in it. They just want to blend. Yeah, I think it depends who you talk to. And I heard the exact opposite, talking about, oh, how do we get millennials to drink our wines? And then you hear from that side that says, oh, well, you know, people, they want they want the stories behind it, or they, they want the information. They want to know the people behind it. It kind of like tying it in with craft beer. It's like younger drinkers want to know something about what they're drinking. And this is kind of the opposite of that. So yeah, I, think, I, I don't know. I think there is something to it. If you're new to wine, you, you might not know of varietals or grapes so mm-hmm. it's a way to get you started into wine but when you get that geeky thing out and you tell them oh by the way this blend is 75 percent of this or throwing people really don't i don't think they care and they don't they don't match up from what i find when you have a red blend section telling people that this is mostly cab doesn't lead them to another blend that has mostly cab right. it's it is a name thing and i think too when people are just starting out in the the label helps to sell it but then at the end of the day the wine has to taste good to them and if it doesn't they're not going to go back to it but if it does then they're much more willing to either buy it again or to maybe look for something similar yeah and that's in the end that's why we explore all these different things and why people should really explore different types of blends because there are different grapes and different percentages so it makes it very very interesting and we think it's fun Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. Our next subject will be talking about steep slopes making a great wine. This was an article in thebacklabel.com. And to me, Kim, this is all about elevation in wine. Let's but, get geeky about yeah, let's this. Yeah, we're going to get geeky about wine a little bit with you. 
folks here today. So yes, elevation definitely playing a part. Not just elevation, there's also the sunshine part of it to be taken into consideration. And there were some really interesting little bits brought up in this article about all these very minute details that go into making a better bottle of wine if it's planted on a hillside or on a slope. Talking about growing on high mountain slopes. When I think of this, I think of regions, northern Italy, Germany, Portugal. Yeah, I think Germany. But I also think think places like Napa, where the the mountains are the places that are producing the best quality grapes. Light exposure, certain sides of the mountains or hillsides are better. Right. So depending on what part of the world you're in, if you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, you want to plant your grapevines in such a way that they get the maximum exposure to sunshine that they can. So usually, if we're talking about the northern hemisphere, we're talking about a south-facing slope. So they'll get morning sun and daytime sun and then that late afternoon sun as well. The drainage issues, this is was something this interesting is really big. we had. Yeah. Uh, when Burgundy, uh, certain sides of the, the slopes, when there's high amounts of rain, the soils actually wash down the mountain. So we've seen these stories where people actually go to the bottom and they collect that soil and they bring it all the way back to the top. Right. We'll see this in Burgundy. We see this in the, in the northern Rhone Valley all the time. It's important to remember that depending on where your grapevines are planted on that slope is also one of the factors that influences the quality. So we, we talk about this all the time and especially in our, our French wine class that grapevines are kind of a funny plant in that they need to struggle uh, in order to produce the best quality grapes for making the best quality wine. So if you plant them in a place that they've got really rich soil and there's lots of nutrients in there, they're going to just throw up a lot of leaves. They're not necessarily going to produce a lot of really good grapes. But if that grapevine has to struggle for water and it has to struggle for nutrients, you're getting some really good quality grapes. So that's one of the reasons why why these hillside slopes are so good too. It's crazy. You're high totally altitude, steep slopes. Your, your nutrients are horrible. Right. It's and hot you in grow the morning. It's wines. hot in the day. It's cold at night. You'd think you're stressing this poor plant out, but that stress seems to be what the plant needs in order to produce grapes that we humans really like the taste of that resulting wine. And there's some incredible images because you can't bring tractors on these slopes. Uh, you're hand harvesting. They're setting up like, uh, what do you call those? Gondola, not a gondola, but a, a line where they would feed the grapes actually down the mountain. Like in uh, baskets. And baskets, then they have to send yeah. Them down. Or they yeah. hand carry in baskets down these mountains. And it's very labor intensive for what you get. So the elevation, years ago, I saw this huge thing about altitude being healthier. Altitude, high altitude wines being healthier for you. Healthier? How yes. do they determine what's healthier? It has to do with the, I would assume the grape skins or the, the okay. phenols. I, yeah. I just saw a whole thing about high altitude wines. And I know a lot of Argentinian winemakers mm-hmm. will advertise that as a health benefit. That's interesting. I had not heard that one before. See, I got, wow, one up on you. Teaching me something today. I, I I would assume it's due to what the difference is, how the skins would would grow or yeah. be more, it'd be better for you. It'd be correct? interesting. You know, I've been trying to keep my ear to the ground about that topic. What makes a quote unquote healthier wine? And I remember reading something recently, probably along a similar lines that when grapes are grown organically, they are again more stressed because they're fighting off predators that they wouldn't normally have to if they were pesticides or herbicides in the vineyard. And then that's another reason why those grapes Grape skins might be thicker or tougher, have more of those chemical compounds that then become a health benefit for humans. So I wonder if it's similar to the altitude thing. It's like they're more stressed. Sounds it, yeah. So therefore, the grapes have to physically do more work. And this was about very steep.
steep sloped wines growing, but you had mentioned Napa and there's also trends where you're talking Oregon with his hills and mm-hmm. you're talking maybe a 400, 600 foot hill that they'll say it's a high altitude versus <laughs> so, and people can actually taste the difference in something that's grown on a higher elevation than a lower. Have you ever experimented with that at no, all? No, I haven't. I haven't thought to do that. I think it's interesting. Just they, they use it as a marketing, you know, we're on this steep 400 foot high hill, but a lot of places in Italy, it's all about the hills and all about the sure. steep slopes. And it does make a difference with the with the quality of the grapes that yep. are grown. So keep an eye out on this on this trend and find uh, a nice steep slope wine. I think it's healthy for you. Kim's questioning it, but <laughs> we'll find out. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. And a topic that we wanted to to introduce to you today is the idea of a wine being dry or a wine being sweet. Now, sometimes we will talk about these sort of textural elements in a wine when we're teaching a wine class. And one of really the most basic ones is, can you taste if the wine is dry or the wine is sweet? I know we run across this an awful lot, Mark, don't we? Yeah, it's very confusing because everybody perceives sweetness and dryness different. But the the geeky part of the wine, I mean, every time you you ferment uh, grapes, the the sugar turns into alcohol. So there's always some sort of sweetness due to the sugar and what's left over. So they mention a lot of numbers of what you can actually detect in a sweetness. Yeah, I thought this this article, this was an article from uh, Wine Enthusiast that we ran across. And I thought this took it to another level uh, in just talking about it wasn't just, oh, a dry wine doesn't have any, any sugar that you can taste versus a sweet wine has sugar that you can taste. You know, they really delved into some other things behind it and how your own particular palate might make you notice sugar more in a wine or not. And not only is it your particular genetic makeup, but then there are also other textural factors in the wine that might lead you to not necessarily notice the sugar quite as much. I find that it's difficult to answer. Many many times with people, I'm looking for a dry red or I'm looking for a sweet red. Mm -hmm. It's tough to really pinpoint. So many times, I'll just recommend looking at the alcohol content. Yeah. Higher alcohol, assume it's a drier wine than if it's a lower alcohol. So if you're comparing two, say, Rieslings and one's 12% and one's 8%, the 8% should be should be sweeter. Right. That's my rule of thumb, especially for Riesling with people. But like most things in wine, you know, we, we have a really hard time giving yes and no black and white answers because oftentimes there might be a yes, this is our rule of thumb, but answer to the question. And, and sweet and dry kind of fall into that same category. So yes, this wine might have a little bit of sugar in there that you could taste, but the acidity level might be so high that it overwhelms the sugar and your palate isn't going to recognize it as having any significant amount of sweetness to it just so because the acid's so high. Let's just give a few geeky numbers let's to compare. Geeky. To compare, what are we talking about? When we're talking about sugar, we're talking about what they call residual sugar, the sugar that's left over after a wine ferments. And they're saying most people cannot detect sweetness below four to five grams per liter. In comparison, 1% residual sugar is equal to 10 grams per liter. Right. So that's generally the definition of a dry wine is that it doesn't have any more than... Most are below one. Most are below 1%. 0.4, And the comparison, a can of Coca-Cola is 11% residual sugar. Right. So just just think about that, that 11% of what's in that can of Coke is sugar. So those 
those those numbers, uh, we always talk about this, about companies saying about the residual sugar levels. Um, one of the things they've been doing lately, winemakers for consumers, is putting these little charts on the back of a bottle. Have, mm-hmm. you, have you seen these? I have. And I think that they're very useful for people. The Riesling people put a sweetness level. So it'll say dry to sweet and rank it where it is uh, on that table. So I think they're very helpful for people who don't want to look at the alcohol content, but it's basically an indication of the alcohol yeah. level. And, and I think that that's that's helpful for consumers because it's a one place that they can look and they don't necessarily need to have the background knowledge of, oh, I know that an 8% wine is going to have some sweetness to it, whereas 11 or 12%, yeah, it might, it might not. You know, I think this is a, a good way for people to gauge very quickly this is a style of wine that I'm looking for. They were talking about residual sugar or sugar levels, how they can be balanced off in a wine with the acid level. Yeah, can you I, I really love this part of it. So wine always has to have some level of acidity to it because if it doesn't, it's just not going to taste balanced. It'd be like the equivalent of having lemonade that doesn't have that bite or that kick from the lemon. Like you have the flavor and you have the sweetness, but then it just feels sort of fat and flabby in your mouth. So both red wines and white wines need some level of acidity to give them, perk them up and to give them some structure if they're whites. And that acid has a balancing effect on the sweetness. So you could have two wines technically that have the same level of sugar, but different levels of acid mm-hmm. and taste totally, totally, totally different. different. Yep. So that's interesting. And then they also talked about how most tannic wines or wines with bitterness can appear to be dry. Right. Because the, those tannins will have a drying effect on your palate. So it will, they coat, they coat your palate, they coat your tongue, they coat the inside of your mouth and they give it like a rough feeling, uh, rough texture. And that is going to make you have that feeling of dryness in your mouth as well. And a lot of these used to be really go-to things you could expect. But lately I've seen a trend where a wine, you know, you would assume to be a tannic or dry wine, they actually add a little bit of maybe residual sugar or something to it to give it a sweetness on the finish. So like what kind of wine are you talking about? Well, there's some Cabernets that are trending that they do things to make it more towards that red blend style. Okay. That's what I find. Have you not experienced that at all? No, I have. And different winemakers will um, definitely pay attention to the market and what are the hot sellers and try to make wines that appeal to the greatest number of people if that if that's what they're going for. You know, some, some winemakers won't do that. They'll be like, nope, the style of wine that we make is the style of wine that we make and nature nature makes it and we're we're just, just sort of the to, midwives here. Sticking to a traditional style right, where right. others are following a trend and making a style based on the trend. Now, the last thing I saw in this was ripe fruit in a wine can be detected as dry, even if it's fermented dry. I mean, does that make sense to you, how they were saying this? Yeah, and I actually bring this up with my students a lot in when people are just learning how to taste wine, because for me, I, I try to divide things into flavors and then into textures. So the, the sweetness and the acidity and the tannins and the alcohol, those kind of all fall in the, the textural realm. But then wine people need a, re, need a language to describe what we're tasting and what we're smelling. So then we revert to fruits and flowers and leather and rocks and things like that. And I, I think that especially when you're beginning to taste wine and think about these things, it's hard for our palates and our brains to think that, oh, this tastes like a raspberry without also associating it with, oh, raspberries are sweet. So sometimes I think that people taste a fruity flavor and immediately associate it with a sweetness because that is how it appears in the real world for you. So you would never eat a peach that didn't have any sweetness to it. You would never eat a strawberry that didn't have any sweetness to it. So then to try to divorce the idea of 
of I'm tasting a strawberry, but it's a strawberry without any sugar can be really difficult to wrap your brain around. So I think that is what they're talking about here, that the idea of having a wine that tastes of very ripe fruit, how is it that you can say, yes, this is really ripe, but I'm not tasting any sugar. So you think people like that surprise that they smell maybe a sweet fruit and then they taste it and it's dry? You think it's more of a shocking to the palate? I think it can be, but I think it depends on your experience level too in your context. And if people are have drink have tasted enough wine or drunk enough wine that they realize that it's not going to be a sweet syrupy wine, even though it smells big and fruity. Um, I think, yeah, generally think that people are aware of that. Well, that's the great thing about wine. And it's just what you perceive as sweet and dry. It's just all about, I guess, telling what type of fruit you would, you would mm-hmm. like in the wine. And then what you like is what you like. You know, people might start off liking sweeter wines, but then as their palate evolves or as their intellectual curiosity changes, they want to go try some other things that might not necessarily be that style. So there's wine out there for everybody. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine with Mark and Kim. Now we're going to talk about what's happening in 2017 about wine production in the world being very low. This was a story in the BBC. Kim, what's your take on what's going on in the world in 2017? So vintages are always kind of up and down. One vintage is never the same as another vintage. So one year might be better for production. Another year might be better for quality. So, you know, we're always looking to see how one year compares to another and then people are always looking at what was the production number. It's like, okay, so some years when you might have a lot of wine produced, prices will drop and people will have a problem selling their wines for enough money to, you know, cover their costs and make a living. And then you have the years that are the opposite end of the spectrum where you might have really bad weather years and people aren't able to make enough wine, even selling it at high prices because the quantity just isn't there. And that seems to be uh, what has happened for 2017. We had some pretty pretty bad weather across Europe this year. The vintage year is just the year the grapes are grown and, and harvested, not the year that they were fermented right. or made. So right. you so. want to, when you're thinking vintage, you want to think about what year were those grapes picked in. In a lot of publications, if you want to get an idea of, of vintage ratings, a lot of publications put out a chart of every year going way back and they'll rate based on factors of good years and bad years and when things are peaked to drink and not to drink. Do you take anything from a vintage chart? I do tend to look at them sometimes when it comes to, do I have an older bottle that I'm aging or did I find an older bottle, you know, at a store or something? And and I'm curious about, you know, how is that wine developing? Was this from a particularly good year? Should I open it now? But then I'm, I'm just always interested in looking at the changes and how was this year compared to that year? And then, you know, sometimes it's fun to taste different vintages side by side and just see if your interpretation of how they taste kind of matches up with uh, with the vintage charts. It's not always the same, but there's so much variation. I use the charts just mostly for if it's peak or off peak, but most of the time I find it's not really true to form. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, for each individual wine, it's different. In this article, hit on saying this is the lowest for, for the world in 50 years, maybe 8% lower in production than, right. than last year. And one of the interesting things we always talk about is even though France, Spain, Italy had these bad frosts and fires in, in Napa, they're still saying the quality of, 
of the fruit they're producing is great. Right. So we're always wondering now, will this, when you look at a chart 10 years from now, will it show it's a high ranked or a high rated vintage? Well, I think those charts really only are rating on quality. I don't think that they're rating on there was a lot of it, there wasn't a lot of it. And, you know, I think the, the system sort of works its, itself out. One of the sort of throwaway lines I felt in this, in this article was, yes, the production is lower this year, but we've had a little bit of a wine glut over the past few years, meaning that there was too much wine on the market and that, frankly, this might even that out. So it, it, it all could be good. Yeah. Basically, the vintage charts are ranking the quality and not any other factors right. that they, they went through. And, and a lot of that you'll get in the, the tech sheets that a winemaker would tell you. Right. And it's That's the kind of the geeky thing that I like. I, mm-hmm. I look at a wine, look at the tech sheet, and they'll tell you when they picked it, uh, was it sunny, you know, what the growing season was like. You can't see that in these vintage uh, reports, but a winemaker really likes to tell you all that data. You've been exploring the wonderful world of wine with Mark Lenzi and I'm Kim Simone, and we invite you to continue to explore with us uh, on our Facebook page. You can find us at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we uh, encourage you to ask us questions, leave us comments, and we will be joining you again soon. Cheers.